Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to the, I guess, technically the last episode of the 2021 season. Of course, there are podcasts in the offseason, but this is the 2021 final show, if you will, the recap, where I have 197 thoughts about the 2021 finals, and I'm going to try to get them all out in some remotely coherent fashion today. We will talk about adjustments that teams made. We will talk about Giannis Antetokounmpo. We will talk about uh, the other stars of the series, Chris Paul, Devin Booker, the play of Drew Holiday, Brooke Lopez. Did I coaching? Did I talk about things like that? I'll kind of flow us through the series, hitting on those notes. And we can contextualize at the end of this, where Giannis's finals rank sort of, uh, let's not go back through all of history, but at least in the last couple decades where we have really quick access to play-by-play data in the NBA Finals and talk about where this wonderful series stacks up, um, how I see it, what the data says, so on and so forth. That's what's on tap for today. So let's get into it. Uh, Last episode, show number 85, We talked about shot quality. If I go through my 41-page note file on the six games in the series, it's normal, right? It's a totally normal thing to do to take 41 pages of notes while you watch basketball. At LG35 on Twitter, if you're looking to mock me directly, uh, that's the best route to do it. But I take notes on you know, kind of flag whether guys take rushed or unnecessary shots. Devin Booker had a few for the Suns. The nature of his game, of course, is taking and making difficult mid-range shots. So he had a handful on the Phoenix side. Jay Crowder had a few quick ones. But Yanni still by far had the most sort of question marks or why is he shooting that in this series. And it's still something he could clean up, which is incredible. It's incredible to think that he could be both more efficient as a scorer the actual bottom line stats for him would improve and his team's efficiency would improve I mean if he truly is just um, taking these 25 percent type three pointers or 32 percent long jumpers and you replace those with more effective half court possessions his on-court rating all of his correlations and his impact stats uh, the Bucks overall team offense their net rating all that stuff will improve so that's still in a way, some low-hanging fruit. It's not like he's taking these threes to keep defenses honest. They're just giving it to him. Except for that one time, what was it, in game five on the spin move where DeAndre Ayton bit on the ump fake. Was that in game five or game six or game four? I don't know. Let's go, let's go back to game one. Game one, the Bucks came out, and if you recall, they switched a ton. And there was some, you know, sort of vacillating between switching and then 
going back to Brooke Lopez in the drop because the switching wasn't working. And here's the thing about that first game. The Suns and their middle-of-the-court actions, pick and roll with Chris Paul, uh, pick and roll with Booker, and then also they love kind of three-man stuff. In my notes, I have it as triangles. Like, Phoenix likes triangles. They like operating with three guys around the foul line, near the elbow, all these kinds of sets. Booker coming up from the baseline on his gut cuts, things like that. And they got really good looks. And they kind of gashed the Bucks a little bit. And the Bucks switching scheme was what I would describe as soft switching. It just, it didn't always have a purpose. It was too easy. It gave Phoenix certain mismatches. It's the kind of defense as well that the Suns are used to seeing. Like teams just giving you the switch so you can figure out how you're going to attack it. Oh, another thing before I get to game two and three. Um, in game one, they started out with P.J. Tucker on Chris Paul. So you kind of have this on-ball weakness if you're running screening actions where Tucker isn't going to be great guarding Paul anyway. It's not, a, it's not a matchup conducive to his sort of defensive or physical strengths. And then because he's so short, um, for all things considered, he's about 6'5", maybe, when he switched to Aiton, when they would just give up these instant switches. Now you have a big on Chris Paul and you have PJ on Aiton. And that also caused problems because Aiton can obviously punish those mismatches. So the scheme needed to be changed. And much to the credit of the Bucks, much to the credit of, of Coach Budenholzer, um, as they've done for the last two and a half rounds, the Bucks continue to adapt a little bit. And in this case... It was coming out of the soft switches, um, taking P.J. Tucker off Chris Paul. And by the time that you... Oh, also, I should mention, in game one, because of those coverages, Devin Booker was also a prolific shot creator. So you had both Paul and Booker hitting you with a two-headed snake. It was... Um, if you'll excuse the comparison, because obviously they were MVP level players a decade ago, but it was a little bit like LeBron and Dwayne Wade could both come at you in similar ways and initiate the offense for the 2011 Heat as they went through the playoffs. And when you have two forces like that, it, it obviously creates a lot of issues for the defense. So coming out of this scheme and adapting and primarily switching Drew Holiday onto Chris Paul starting in game two heavily. And then by the time, you know, you get to game three in the series, the scheme for the Bucks is a little clear and they're putting Drew on Chris Paul. It's not a switch everything scheme for Milwaukee, but what they essentially moved to as the series developed was we're going to have Drew stay glued to the ball if possible, especially when he's guarding Chris and sometimes we'll stick him on Booker if we need to and the same principles apply so Drew's going kind to of, kind of work his way around screens and blow up plays as much as possible we are going to switch when needed and then these three-man actions that the Suns run all these kind of again the triangles right like we are going to understand who's who are the two smalls in the action who's the big how we want to switch it if there's a switch, what needs to happen if Aiton rolls to the basket with a mismatch? You saw some scrams behind the play where if it was 
you know, on one play it was Bryn Forbes, but if it was uh, somebody who they didn't want in that situation, they would try to get even Holiday or just a stronger, bigger player uh, onto Aiton so they didn't have these mismatches. And in a way, it was like a three-man zone in the middle of the floor just in terms of understanding what the Suns like to do. The Suns like to bunch people together, whether it's Horns, which is two guys at the elbow, and two in the corner, and then those elbow guys can cross screen, they can um, get into screen the screener stuff, whether it's Booker coming up from the baseline off of screens, whether it's their Spain pick and roll or their stack pick and roll, where they have three players involved in the pick and roll instead of two. It was understanding one of these guys is probably going to roll, one of these guys is probably going to pop, the ball handler still needs to be accounted for, the Bucks uh, forgot about that on about two plays over the course of the series, but they just tighten this up as the series progressed. And so by the time you get to game three, I thought Milwaukee had a defensive game plan against what the Suns were doing that kind of slowly started to strangle off their ability to get decent shots. Or maybe put put more accurately, good shots. They were okay with giving the Suns these decent shots. And in, and in this case, it was, you know, we don't want to get broken down off the dribble. We don't want to give up stuff at the rim. We obviously don't want to give up wide open shooters, uh, wide open threes to good shooters like Cam Johnson or Jay Crowder. But we're going to not oversell and overhelp on these two man and three man actions in the middle of the court. If Drew Holiday's involved and he stays home, the Suns had to spend a ton of time working to get him off of the ball handler. Uh, in the middle games, it was primarily Chris Paul, where Holiday was matched up with him. Then they spend the entire possession. This is the problem with this. They spend 8, 10, 12, 14 seconds sometimes trying to screen Holiday off of Paul. So it's, it's mismatch hunting. But what you end up with is you end up with Chris Paul isolating with 7 or 9 or 11 seconds on the shot clock against Pat Connaughton was someone they targeted. If Brooke Lopez was on the court or Bobby Portis, they might try to uh, get a mismatch with him. But the thing is, eight, nine seconds in those situations isn't a lot of time, especially for a 36-year-old Chris Paul. It's not like he can just instantly destroy him off the bounce and then put the defense in rotation and get really easy stuff. So what ended up happening is the Suns were working hard for these mismatches, but a lot of the time, the mismatches were still only yielding like an okay 17-foot step back or something. So the problem, obviously, is you end up doing all this work if you're Phoenix, and you don't get that wide-open, easy corner three. Sometimes, sure, but you don't get the layups, typically. Bucks had a couple breakdowns here and there. But once you were kind of in one of these positions, they were often getting 14, 16-footers, sometimes contested, sometimes soft. And mathematically, that starts to add up in favor of Milwaukee. So it's like one of these situations where the Bucks seemed like they were content to kind of slowly strangle off what the Suns had on offense. I described it as just sinking in like a rear naked choke in mixed martial arts or something. And it was only a matter of time. Maybe you can tuck your chin and kind of avoid being knocked out. But... 
essentially you're in a bad position. You're on your back and you're in a bad position. And what's interesting is it's like the Suns didn't want to get back up and resume stand-up fighting or something because it's, yes, they may have been out of options, but from their perspective, the best case attack they had was to let Paul or Booker or whoever was kind of driving the ship on those possessions or maybe whoever wasn't being guarded by Drew Holiday at some point in the series. From their perspective, their best possessions and their best offense may have been, hey, spend the first 15 seconds of the shot clock mismatch hunting. Uh, You may have noticed it was pointed out, I want to say in the Game 6 broadcast, but they had been doing it for a couple games. The Suns were setting screens at midcourt and at back in the backcourt to try to get Holiday off of Paul early, that was mildly effective. One of the one of the adjustments I thought Paul made in Game Five was when he got that back backcourt screen and got ahead of Drew coming up the court, he would just push it hard down into like uh, the big or whoever was in the paint and kind of force a reaction, and then Aiton could come rolling downhill behind the play they got a couple really nice buckets early in game five I think Aiton started game five with like 10 points in the first quarter I want to say off the top of my head and a lot of it was from that kind of action where Paul was thinking instead of shedding Drew in the backcourt screen and then looking for someone else to switch on to and kind of start the play from there let's just take that advantage and move forward Um, that's easier said than done when you're driving into Giannis Antetokounmpo, sometimes Brooke Lopez, uh, Chris Middleton's a big body, and you know the Bucks are pretty sound defensively, and Paul is not exactly a, a vertical rim finisher. Let me read something here from today's Patreon content, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. This is a finals recap that I put out with a lot of the data that we look like. I just want to I just want to read a snippet of this that's related to this mid-range shooting that I'm talking about. This is talking about uh, an inability to get to the basket. Among all NBA Finals participants, with at least 100 minutes played, going back to 2001, the frequency of shots taken at the rim for Chris Paul landed in the 22nd percentile, and for Devin Booker in the 32nd percentile. Drew Holiday himself took as many shots at the rim as Paul and Booker combined during this series, and Giannis took twice as many by himself as those two players combined. It gets even worse when we include free throws. Booker's in the 13th percentile among finals participants since 2001 in the share of his offense at the rim, in the share of his offense that came at the rim or from the free throw line, and Chris Paul was in the 8th percentile. Thank you very much for indulging my, my writing. Um, I, I thought that said it all, that this was a series where, and, and both Paul and Booker shot well in the mid-range. Booker shot like 45 or 46%, I think, in the mid-range, made a ton of tough shots, especially in Game 4 and Game 5, and then the Bucks came out and they deployed the Drew Holiday anti, <laughs> anti-aircraft anti system. Um, they're just like, all right, we're going to put Drew back on Booker in game six and make his life extremely difficult. And of course, he spent some time on Paul, uh, especially when only one of those guys is on the court. So another byproduct of this approach is that 
you don't get that great Phoenix Suns ball movement with all the uh, 10-11 pass sequences, uh, Mikael Bridges cutting, wide open threes at the end of it, whatever it may be. Suns averaged 284 passes per game in the regular season. In games two through four, that went down to 248. I actually haven't looked it up since game four. I thought by game four, Phoenix was just hoping to find isolation switches to attack, as we talked about, or hoping that it was the P.J. tucker Brook Lopez combo involved in a two-man pick-and-roll. That means P.J. on the ball, Brook Lopez as the big. Brook will be in a drop. So that's what the Bucs basically did in this series. They said, we're going to have switching responsibilities. Drew's going to st- try to stay on the ball. If Lopez is the big man, he will drop. And otherwise, we are going to look at uh, switches or late switches if needed. We're not going to just soft switch for the sake of switching on the ball all the time. And that meant that by game four, maybe, and certainly for the last two games of the series, the weak point defensively on the court for me was this Tucker Lopez pick and roll. And the Suns would attack it when it was available. Let's say Tucker's on Chris Paul, bring Aiton up, run a two-man pick and roll. And they got a lot of good offense out of that. The numbers were not great defensively for Milwaukee um, when Lopez and Lopez and Tucker were on the court together. But in game four, or excuse me, in game five, Tucker got foul trouble. I think it was game five. And that took him effectively off the court. Pat Connaughton ended up being the guy through a number of games in the middle part of this series um, who finished fourth in minutes for Milwaukee behind their big three. And I thought that lineup just gave them more versatility. One question I get all the time is, what is the best way for me to move into basketball as a career, media side, analytics, whatever it is. And the single best recommendation I always have is Sports Business Classroom. Mike De La Rosa, the Thinking Basketball video coordinator, went through SBC, as did Rob Antle. He runs our community Discord and now works in sports. They are both alums of this program. And if you don't know it, SBC is an immersive program at the NBA Summer League, right in the smack middle of it, in the Thomas and Mack Center that basically gives you a professional crash course in breaking into pro basketball. There's analytics instruction, film study, basketball operations, the media side, and it's a great way to network with people already working in the league and covering the league. There are former players, former front office members. They have former GM Ryan McDonough, Seth Partnow, Kirk Goldsbury, and many more. And I have a great deal right now for anyone interested in this. You can get $200 off with the promo code THINKINGBASKETBALL when you sign up at sportsbusinessclassroom.com. It's www.sportsbusinessclassroom.com. SBC runs from August 9th through August 14th at Summer League. If you sign up before August 1st, you get early registration pricing. And of course, Thinking Basketball promo code will give you $200 off. Head on over to www.sportsbusinessclassroom.com. And as always, supporting our sponsors is a fantastic way to help support this show. Phoenix's final adjustment Uh, in game six in terms of this pick and roll dance was really interesting. I liked it a lot. So as I mentioned, the Bucs were switching with Giannis if they needed to, but basically always dropping with Brooke Lopez by convention. And so what Monty Williams did is when 
Giannis and Lopez were on the court together, he would put Giannis in a screen first. Jeff Van Gundy, to his credit, was all over this on the broadcast. He would put Giannis in a screen first, then he would re-screen with Lopez's man. So Giannis is on the ball, switch to the ball handler, whoever that is, typically Booker or Paul, and then he would bring the big in with Lopez. And that put Milwaukee in a tricky situation because Lopez is dropping by convention and Giannis has to be the guy pushing around the screen and, and kind of chasing the ball handler and pushing the ball handler into tougher spots and pursuing from the rear view. But Giannis gets stuck on screens easily because he's huge and it's harder for him to move his feet. So that gave the Suns, again, some fantastic wide open shots from the mid-range and they capitalized on those. The problem is it's an easy counter. The, the counter to that is you just take Brooke Lopez off the court. And that is essentially what Milwaukee did down the stretch of that game. In the sec- I, I don't know what his exact minutes were off the top of my head in the second half, but, I mean, there was a reason why Bobby Portis was out there making big shots. They just said, if we remove Lopez from the equation, they can't use that strategy. They can't attack this weak point. So it's a relatively easy counter. So I, I liked the series that Coach Bud coached. Um, I've certainly been critical of him in the past. There are still things to be critical of here. I, I will never understand. The, the, the strategy guy in me will never understand not challenging fouls with obvious points on the board, whether it's a goaltending call where it's clearly not a goaltending, so you're just going to get two points back. That's like found money. Or the three-shot foul, there was one or two P.J. Tucker three-shot fouls, I think, that just did not look like fouls. Um, And especially when you're fouling an 85 or 90% three-point shooter, you have an opportunity to grab huge value. When you consider that they rarely ever use a challenge anyway, uh, yeah, I won't understand those kinds of things. But I thought after the middle of the Brooklyn series sort of – a willingness to be more flexible with lineups, uh, minutes, uh, even changing strategies a little bit. The usage of Giannis, and, and Giannis, we'll come back to him later in the show, but he he gets some credit for that. But the coaching staff is also putting him in better positions offensively. They're saying, okay, if you want to isolate, don't isolate from the top, isolate from the wing. Um, we want you more involved in the action as a screener and role man. But this can be like, look at what Denver does with Jokic. He's not the same shooter. He's not the same kind of player. Obviously, they're not, not the same passer. But just get involved in the action that way. Giannis, the whole series, had gravity rolling to the basket and coming downhill. The Suns were concerned about him first and foremost. Anybody doing the thing where like Chris Middleton is the closer and he's this guy and that guy, um, sort of, but Giannis is still the guy that Phoenix is game planning for and loading up on defensively. For instance, they are in this series on film very cautious about leaving his driving lanes too open. So we've we've talked about building a wall for a couple of years, but this is even simple things like I'm going to help off a corner shooter one pass away on the same side of the court because I don't want you to have a huge lane to drive into against DeAndre Ayton. On the plays where the players defensively weren't in position to do that for Phoenix or they failed to do that, they were a step or two outside the driving lane, Yanni's basically destroyed 
DeAndre Ayton. Um, I mean, let's give Ayton some credit. He's come a long way defensively. He's a good defender. And physically, he did a good job on a number of drives. But when you play a guy like that, when you play an offense like that, if you only do a good job on like half of the drives and you get, I don't know, basically destroyed on the rest, giving up shots, giving up and ones, giving up layups, and then a lot of fouling because you can't quite get your body in the right position. And maybe to Aiden's credit, he doesn't know the tricks either. You know, it's nice to see a guy just try to defend instead of trying to draw charges, but it was tough sledding for him. Anyway, the thing that I really liked about Bud's series was I was going back through my notes, those, those 41 pages. Maybe that should be the title of the podcast today, 41 pages. Um, I noticed a ton of good ATOs after timeout plays where I wrote in my notes, really nice play design. Like they got something good out of timeouts constantly. And then sure enough, I went and looked up. You can go to uh, PBP stats, play-by-play stats. We talk about them all the time. An incredible site. And you can look at points off of turnovers and you can look at points after timeouts and in the possessions after timeouts, Milwaukee scored 54 points on 38 after timeouts in this series. That's an offensive rating of 142. By comparison, the Suns had 21 after timeouts and they scored 14 points. And yes, I did have a number of notes that said, Ah, this after timeout play by Phoenix, it was blown up. It was blown up by Drew Holiday. It was blown up by Chris Middleton. Um, Oh, they didn't get anything there. They looked to switch for too long. So this was something that, at least on film, the quality of these possessions looked different. And the other thing that jumps out to me here, and this could be strategic, right, is the number of after timeouts. Because if Milwaukee's, if Bud's saying, forget it, I'm not going to challenge. I'm not going to waste one of my timeouts challenging. I'm going to use my timeouts to help rest my guys, especially Giannis. I'm going to use my timeouts when I feel like we need to get a good possession. I'm going to burn through my timeouts in the game like that so I can constantly get these good possessions. And that's something they felt like they had in their pocket. Then tip of the cap to them, you know, hats off. Now, I don't know if that's what happened or they just happened to be slightly more productive than normal. I mean, it's only 38 possessions, but that's the, the number of after timeouts is something that jumps out to me here, assuming that you're going through the game, thinking about where can we grab low-hanging fruit? And if we do well in timeouts, let's make sure we put our guys in a position to get these kind of set pieces um, after we use our timeouts. Another big thing in the series, transition points. And not just transition points, but specifically points off turnovers and points off long rebounds. The Suns, I thought, had a few issues with cross matches where they do all that stuff we talked about on one end of the court. They're trying to find a switch. And then you end the possession. And as you run back, now Devin Booker is being guarded by uh, Brooke Lopez or Bobby Portis. So when the Bucks get the ball, it flips and one of those guys needs to guard the big. But... Phoenix doesn't want to set their defense that way. So they're looking to fix the cross matches. They're looking to avoid those cross matches. And I just thought in transition, whether it was a hit ahead, seal in the post, um, trailing threes, Pat Connaughton had a number of early open trailing threes. Brooke Lopez did. Chris Middleton had a couple. um, Or even just matching up with Giannis as he came down the court, 
trying to set the defense, you're not in the right position to help Aiton and gap uh, and, and get in Giannis's driving lane on one side or the other. I thought all of those things were sort of positives for the Bucks. The numbers, the Bucks scored 61 points off of 47 steals. That's a 130 uh, offensive rating with 21 of those shots coming at the rim. They also scored 48 points off of 38 long mid-range misses. So all of those long jumpers, those tough mid-range shots that you're forcing Phoenix into, um, they're more likely to have long rebounds. They're more likely to kind of get you going back with some pace in a cross-match situation. The Suns also, as most teams do, had very efficient offense on their forced turnovers when the ball was live, 57 points on 42 steals for a 136 offensive rating, but they did not have the same success on runouts on long misses, I felt. I'm losing my voice, so we're going to power through the rest of this. Let's let's get to Giannis and the best players in this series and contextualize his series. Uh, first, I just want to point out Drew Holiday game five was the Drew Holiday game. He made his shots. His defense was phenomenal. And given how close that game was, in a way, he ended up swinging the series. You know, when, a, when an individual player has a brilliant game like that, especially when he's not the best player on a team, it can bump your win probability. I did a study many years ago just looking at the box score, and when you have great individual games, regardless of team strength, you're likely to win like 75 or 80% of the time. I'm not saying his game was at that level of, you know, the very best individual games, um, but it's it's a huge boost, no doubt, especially in a series where you have a handful of these close games. Devin Booker made incredible shots in games four and five, and so in game six, they just said, we're going to stick Drew Holiday back on you for a ton of time, and that made life a lot harder once again. So Chris Paul's numbers go up because he's the beneficiary of having less Drew Holiday on him, and Booker's numbers go down. Really, really impressive defensive series for Drew. Um, Paul, by the way, he shot well in the mid-range. His numbers were good. He had a lot of really good passes. He created a lot of offense. He played well. He yet another series where he loses and, or I should technically say his team loses and there's a narrative attached to it going up 2-0 and then dropping the next four. But I actually thought the bigger issues with him were defensive. I talked about this in that uh, Patreon only article, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. If you want to access extra content there, I talked a little bit more about uh, his defensive stuff. Giannis, boy. I'm working on a video right now as we speak. There's more content on the finals coming uh, in addition to this podcast. And Giannis's sort of shift since the middle of the Brooklyn series to playing in different spots on the floor, being more of a role man, off-ball, offensive rebounding, the way he's approaching his shot selection, even just the little mid-rangers. These are the things that I've wanted him to add to his game for such a long time just give me give me a drop step give me a hook give me something in the post and give me a 12 foot fadeaway that Shaq had a 10 foot fadeaway that's all you need that along with I went back and for this video I've been looking at his 2019 film against the Raptors he was a little quicker a little more frenetic in 2019 he was a little more chaotic that's the word I'm looking for and that's not necessarily a bad thing 
uh, or a good thing one way or the other. I mean, he's very effective then and he's very effective now. But especially in this series coming off the hyperextended knee, it's more strength. It's more carving into his spots on the defense. It's more under control. It's understanding that there may be backside help into his spin. In the Toronto series, and even just in the last couple of years, going into traffic and walling him off with you you kind of knew you were going to get the spin back and it opened him up for turnovers and his turnover economy for much of this series was fantastic because I just felt so many of his moves were under control and in addition to that the added weight that he's put on the added strength it's not huge but it's it's subtle but relevant helped him really bully uh, basically, I mean, he's bullying DeAndre Ayton. He's bullying Jake Crowder. I credit these guys for trying to stay in front of him and defend him, as I mentioned earlier, but really ended up with uh, 84% shooting at the rim for Giannis in this series. And then, of course, in game six, oh, what would happen if he made his free throws? Well, he's going to go from a 35-point score to a to a 50 point score <laughs> unbelievable game i i am reminded of something that i discussed in thinking basketball the book which is what happens if we run a career backwards and the narratives that would form because you have a lot of narratives now after 2019 2020 and kind of those failures but he's a similar player he didn't he didn't radically change his game he didn't develop a jump shot if anything his his shot has gone in the opposite direction so there are things that he's improved upon and in a sense that's what this video uh, I'm working on is about but he's a similar player and what ends up happening is you get more bites at the apple as you play more and so this does two things it lets you learn and grow as you see different defensive coverages, as you play a variety of opponent of opponents. But then in addition to that, it becomes more likely that you have a favorable matchup. And if you compare playing the 2019 Toronto Raptors, where they could throw Siakam at him, a huge kind of physically similar forward, Marc Gasol behind, Serge Ibaka behind. I mean, these are defensive player of the year guys in, in Marc Gasol and then Kawhi Leonard. Um, Giannis is stronger now. I don't know if I don't know how much Leonard's strength would bother him anymore. I think some of those easy dunks and layups he misses in that series. I mean, heck, he probably doesn't miss him if they play the series again back then. But that control that I talked about, that physical um, improvement in his strength, probably means those dunks go in, those layups go in, and Kawhi can't quite bump him off balance as much with his insanely strong core and lower body. But that was, that was an incredible Toronto defense. In this case, the Suns were not an incredible defense. Um, no knock on them. They were a solid defense. Mikael Bridges, Ayton, I mean, they did a good job throughout the year, but they also just don't have the bodies. They're a team playing one big, and now you get to pair that with, instead of the other guys being on the floor, Siakam and Kawhi Leonard, you're talking about Jay Crowder, Bridges, guys like that, Tory Craig. So when someone's in one of those favorable circumstances early in their career, maybe Tim Duncan in 1999, 
next to David Robinson, given the shape of the league, given Craig Popovich as their coach, we sort of sprinkle dust on them and view them a certain way. And I think in football, as I mentioned in the book, uh, this happened to a certain degree with Tom Brady uh, early on with the Patriots. And if we run careers in the other direction, we kind of would invert the narrative. And yes, sometimes players are better. Sometimes there's material changes. Yes, the growth matters. But the growth of the individual player also it gets conflated with the success of the team and things like that. If, if the Bucks lose to Brooklyn in the second round, we're having a very different discussion. Giannis can then play the way he played, which I thought was the best of his career, after the middle of that series, game seven of that series, another 40-pointer, then through the Hawks series, then through the finals, and they could lose the finals in five or six games. They could have lost some of these close games if a few other guys don't make shots. And the narrative becomes very, very different. Just want to throw that out there. Milwaukee finished with the fourth best postseason defense by relative defensive rating. That's when you take the defensive efficiency in the playoffs and you compare it to what would be expected based on all your opponents' offensive rating. They were 8.3 points, held their opponents 8.3 points below their regular season efficiencies. Again, that's fourth all time, tied with the 96 Bulls, the Bad Boys Pistons from 1990, trailing only the 2019 Toronto Raptors, the aforementioned Raptors. The 2019 Bucks themselves, another fantastic playoff defense through three rounds and the legendary the one and only 2004 Detroit Pistons best playoff defense ever by that metric with at least 10 postseason games played offensively on the other hand and this starts to contextualize for me how I see a playoff run like this um, how I evaluate players how I how I evaluate this final series the offense was right around what we'd expect for the Bucks. they were plus 0.5 so they only outscored the average of their opponent's regular season defenses by 0.5 points per 100. This is, this is not a good playoff offense, basically. Uh, for teams that make deep runs into the postseason, it's very rare to have an offense that, this week, that is this weak. So this was a defensively oriented kind of championship run from them. Um, very similar to the 19 Raptors, although the 19 Raptors were better offensively. But this is Giannis, this is Brooke Lopez, this is Drew Holiday. This is, in a sense, kind of their Picasso on the defensive end. And then you have to give flowers to the other players uh, on the team as well. P.J. Tucker had a good series against Brooklyn. Uh, he is, in general, out there for defense and shooting corner threes. Although he doesn't shoot many corner threes anymore. I don't know what's up with that. Anyway, I have a suite of metrics that I look at uh, that are proprietary in-house to evaluate players, and I ran them for just the finals to look at the best finals series since 2001. That's the last, what is that? That's 21 finals series. And I, I looked at two major one-number stats. One of them is my version of box plus minus. Um, which is going to be more offensively slanted. And then the other one is augmented plus minus. I've talked about this a lot lately in a series for Patreon subscribers, kind of how we make sense of plus minus data in the playoffs. It's very noisy. We have a small sample, but I think there's a lot of meaning there. I think when you look at 
larger samples and multi-year runs and things like that, you start to get all of the big names bubbling back to the top. Uh, I think it's an incredibly important family of stats to look at because you're looking at something that is directly tied to impact and value on the court, even if it's noisy and doesn't get it right. It's still the, it's still in the right family, whereas box scores just count up stuff and then we hope they relate to that impact and value family. With that said, in my box plus minus, Yanni's had the eighth best final series since 2001 at plus nine. The very best final series since 2001 was 2017. Kevin Durant at plus 10.9. Um, Shaq also has a better season at plus 9.4. And in case you're wondering, you're thinking like, wait a second, there are better final series than, than Giannis. That was incredible what I just watched. Um, remember, evaluating defense, especially in a single series, is very tricky. It's something that the box score doesn't necessarily capture. And some of these series... When we watch, we think of level of difficulty a lot. So we have a four-game comeback. We have a number of big plays in close games. And these are things that resonate for people. And they're not necessarily tied to impact. So it's not that the impact stats are failing us in some way when we look at a one-number metric and it doesn't capture those plays. But it's up to us to then judge how much we want to add for the huge block at the end of the game or the the steal and the dunk or whatever it may be compared to like Durant in 2017 playing on arguably the best team ever. I think probably we can say confidently the best offense ever and his value numbers and, and the impressiveness of that whole series. I mean, they were running through Cleveland like a, like a hot knife through butter. And so Durant having that series I mean, he could have been 20% worse, and they probably would have won the series comfortably. Uh, They won it in five as it was. Um, Some of the raw numbers, Giannis 33 points per 75 on plus 9% true shooting. Um, For instance, Shaq in a 2002 sweep against New Jersey was... 35 points per 75 on plus 12.5% efficiency that aforementioned Durant finals was 32 on plus 15 percent efficiency and all of these offenses were really really successful in their series whereas the Bucks offense I think the bus Bucks ended this series at around plus four uh, I mentioned that somewhere that's somewhere in the article if you're a Patreon you can find that exact number but you know these are all things that um, I look to contextualize if someone were to ask me to evaluate a single series. The hardest part by far of evaluating a series um, is either the defense or kind of trying to balance the luck of hot or cold shooting with everything else. Uh, obviously, if the shots don't go in, it's hard to say you played a great series. But for the most part, over a five, six, seven game series, what I'm interested in is can you get good shots? Um, can you pressure the defense? How much do you create for your teammates? What quality of passes do you make? Things like this. And the holistic evaluation of this series, I think no matter what perspective you take, puts it as one of the better finals performances of the last decade. If we looked at augmented plus minus, which is trying to estimate what like a, a single series 
adjusted plus minus number would look like. It's way too small of a sample to really be super confident in it, but it takes all the information we have um, in the box score to try to guess what's happening in plus minus. It takes the plus minus of the player and his teammates into account. And then in this case, it weights it based on prior plus minus since we only have the six games of the series. It's way too small of a sample. And the outcome is that um, it thinks this is, I think Giannis was 13th in augmented plus minus in this series among finalists. The best, the best number in that metric was 2016 Draymond Green, who of course missed a game in that seven game series. What a series, by the way, Draymond had. You forget he actually scored decently 16 points per 75 on plus 9% creation. He passed the ball like a maniac. He made 41% of his threes. He played defense out of his mind. Oh, man. Um, Wade in 2006, right next to Giannis, just for some comparison. Other, other players with finals runs that popped as better in this metric. 2009, Kobe, uh, Curry, LeBron has a bunch, Shaq, Tim Duncan, and the aforementioned Kevin Durant. So for me, you could maybe say, looking at these kinds of metrics, that there are four series, a a couple LeBron series and a Shaq series that are kind of like definitively better just from that perspective. And then statistically, Giannis is right there in the next group. And again, as I said, it's hard in small samples without really delving into the film to, to feel more confident one way or the other, especially about defense. But I think just statistically, we are talking about one of the five, maybe 10 best finals series by an individual in the last 20 or so years. And that seems about right to me. Uh, I think for other people, they're thinking like, I've never seen anything like that. That's the best I've ever seen anyone play in a decade or two or things like that. That seems about right to me. I think where LeBron was as a player, where Shaq was as a player, um, what we saw from Tim Duncan in 2003 and a handful of other, you know, two or three other um, final series here and there. It's super underrated 2017 playoff run and finals from Steph Curry. Uh, Durant, as we meant, like that seems about right to me. And then maybe you could shift them up or down depending on a, a more nuanced, detailed take. Or if if we had a criteria that we cared about the opponent or the difficulty, you know, some of these are sweeps versus um, this series, which was a much more competitive series. I thought in total the Bucks were slightly a better team. I felt that way for most of the series, especially after about halftime of game two I thought they had slightly more advantages uh, to create and take away on both ends of the court but Phoenix was I think a similar kind of level team Um, neither of these teams knocking down the door against the world beaters but when you have years where slightly weaker teams can come through absolutely kind of similar as I said with Seth Partnow a couple weeks ago I think similar to the ish to the 2011 Mavericks, that kind of champion. Um, and certainly even the 2006 Heat, to me, were a weaker champion than, than these types of teams. So make of that what you will when it comes to evaluating a series like Giannis. That is it. I think I got through all the notes. Um, remember to check out Sports Business Classroom if you're looking to get that $200 off with the promo code 
thinkingbasketballsportsbusinessclassroom.com. Also, if you want access to any of these stats, any additional content, uh, we have a monthly Discord historical database. It's patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. That's the best way to support all Thinking Basketball endeavors. We made it. Hope you enjoyed this one. Hope you enjoyed the final series. Uh, Thanks, as always, for listening. And, of course, I hope that wherever you're listening, you are all having a great day.